Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Srividya Sridharan. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Principal Analyst Amy Bills and Vice President and Principal Analyst Laura Ramos to discuss how B2B companies can get more value from their customer advocacy efforts. Welcome both. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. Likewise, really happy to join the show today. So let's dive right in. What does customer advocacy mean and why are we having this conversation now in this environment? So from a B2B context, customer advocacy, I would say, is any strategy, program, plan, execution you put together as a customer marketing person in in particular to help your customers share their knowledge, their experience, and their advice with either prospects or other customers. And it takes on a lot of different flavors and and shapes from there. But that's the basic thing is really about how do you get your customers to talk about their experiences and promote, advocate, give testimonial for the kinds of things that you've helped them achieve. It's important because in B2B, Hearing from other customers has always been important. I mean, if you go back years and years and years, we've always, our sales teams have always needed customer references. And then as things became, and that was in, you know, one-to-one land when there was, there was nothing digital. And it grew and changed as things became more digital so that we could have lots of um, customers, case studies, uh, testimonial videos, reviews, all of these kinds of digital things we really need to be able to keep track of, produce on a regular basis, and make available to our sellers to make them more productive. So, I mean, it strikes me, a lot of companies have customer advocacy programs, right? So I guess maybe maybe the question is, why are we talking about this in this moment? Is there something that you're noticing as part of your you know, conversations with clients that they're not up to snuff. There's a there are key areas of improvement that we we want to be focusing on today. Yeah, I think Amy and I would both agree that we see lots of room for improvement. And the basic issues are number one that customer advocacy programs tend to start in one area and grow organically, and then they become very ad hoc, and companies end up harassing their customers from a lot of different directions rather than coming at them with a holistic program. Amy and I both think the holistic program is the way to go. And then the second part of it is that most of these programs or any kind of advocacy, even if it starts to get rolled into one big program, tends to be inside out, focuses much more on what the companies need and a lot less on what's in it for the customer. What kind of uh, experience or value are they going to get and enjoy and therefore want to be an advocate and continue advocacy behaviors and activities? I would even maybe uh, challenge the the statement, we see a lot of advocacy programs now, and I'm hitting program, because what Laura and I uh, both see a lot of is a lot of companies with random acts of advocacy, which we're not labeling that a program just yet. When we, you know, And so a little bit of what we're talking about here is moving from reactive random advocacy Uh, ask someone when you need it, don't think about it otherwise, to something that is more programmatic, more ongoing, and more of a two-way street. That's when I think we're ready to call it program. 
So there's certainly a discipline of what what qualifies for an actual program. But I want to go back to what, Laura, you said about what's in it for the customer. Do you think marketers have a good understanding of what motivates customers to become advocates? I know we've done some research in this area. And um, tell us a little bit about what does motivate customers to become advocates? This has been one of the big problems, I think, is that customer marketers don't understand why customers would even want to be an advocate. They just kind of go out with their hand out asking all the time, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you give me a case study? Can you come speak at a webinar? So to help understand what's in it for the customer, Forrester identified four different advocate personality types. And we call them personalities because they aren't really full-blown personas. They're more like a way of behaving and preferences for how people uh, want to engage. So I'm going to, I guess, quickly just run through the four and and uh, give you a sense of, of what they are. They're educators is one personality. These are the folks that like to share tips and tricks and get together with other folks. They're the birds of the feather people. Um, they're the validators. These are the ones who will provide you with direct candid feedback. that They want to be part of things like early testing programs for your products and or services. Uh, they want to be the ones that you ask to come in and review your roadmap with them. There are the status seekers. These are folks who really see working with you as an opportunity to elevate their, uh, their personal profile inside of their organization or to really help advance their career. And then they're the collaborators. And these folks tend to be the least frequent that we see, but they're the ones who really sort of have the juice. Uh, they're the ones that are really interested in working with you to go beyond sort of the, well, yeah, here's our story. They want to help really make you successful as well. So I love that construct. That's super helpful. How do you know where your customers fall in those personality styles? What is the work that needs to be done to, to identify them? So it's a great question. And I think the first thing to think about is that the personalities Laura just laid out are not meant to be a pigeonholing. They're meant to be an organizing structure for you as the marketers to make sure that you're sort of meeting your advocates at a place they want to be met. So we want to think about this. It's less about you are an educator, I am shoving you into that slot, and you are not allowed to do anything. That's not where we're going at all. Rather, it's a structure for us to think about, us meeting marketers, to think about what would be motivating and interesting. It is possible, absolutely, to fit into more than one of these. You could be an educator and a status seeker in different, uh, you know, in different lights or different contexts. So it's not so much we're going to segment you put you on a list and you're never permitted to do anything, but rather a way for the marketers to think about how are we laying out an array of opportunities that are interesting and make sense to the advocates. That's just, and, and as Laura's noted, it's a, um, it's a really nice way to just kind of organize and, and in a lot of ways, be sure that you have something for everyone who wants it. You know, you're laying out a lot of different options. That's what this is really good for. Jen, the other thing it does that, you know, we found is that it helps other customer facing teams like sales, customer success, uh, keep the focus on the customer. You know, it's really easy for teams to fall back into, oh, my God, I need six case studies. Where am I going to get them from? And and to think more about 
what are we asking our customers to do and, and what would appeal to an educator versus a validator so that we know that we're offering and, and creating experiences that will appeal across the whole spectrum of the types of preferences that customers have? I think a great litmus test for this is if your team feels like you are constantly uh, pleading or chasing customers or always in these anxious situations where you've got an opportunity and can't find anyone, that's maybe a signal that you need to and should think a little bit more about how can we create a, a situation where advocates do not have to be chased because this is actually interesting to them. We're, you know, we're meeting, we're all meeting halfway and it is, um, it's a good little test for yourself. If you are constantly chasing customers, you may want to go to the drawing board on some of these personalities. A big part of the responsibilities for these different personality types is creating content, right? So how do we know that there are certain personality types that are predisposed to help with certain types of content, like are educators better at creating different types of content versus status seekers versus collaborators? Talk to us a little bit about kind of the content creation aspect and, and um, their role in it. Let's start with educators. As Laura noted, educators are, they're naturally inclined to share what they know. They want to teach. They, they enjoy being asked for their guidance or their opinion. And so in terms of particular content, again, without pigeonholing anyone, they would be an educator. An educator would be a really good candidate for things like uh, content like FAQs, tips and tricks, five things I did to make my onboarding smooth, you know, allowing others to learn from their experience. They're really great participants in things like if you were to do crowdsource content, what was the best decision you made earlier in your career? They like to be acknowledged as a teacher. Uh, they are probably, if you have an online community, your educators are probably first on the scene to answer how-to questions, how did you tackle this? What did you use this feature for? They're the first to raise their hand in the user group and kind of share how they've done that. I would say events are also a really good fit for educators. And when I say events, I don't only mean putting an educator up on a, on a big stage in person. Educators do great sharing insights in a user group or even like a birds of a feather round table, anywhere they can demonstrate their knowledge and expertise. And one more thing I'll note, this is also a great place where a few different personality types could align. So think about something like uh, in, a, in a community or in an event, designations you might have like a super user or a power user, a champion. That's motivating for educators. It sort of labels them as someone knowledgeable. By the way, that's also very motivating for a status seeker who loves to have a label that says, I am smart. So again, there can be overlap, but what you want to get to, of course, is what is motivating and pleasing to that advocate. What about a different scenario, like helping to close a deal? Are there personality types that align to that kind of use case? Oh, absolutely. And that's, I would say, the personality type that lines mostly to that is the validator. Because these are the people who, even though they may be having some little difficulty or have a case open with your product or, you know, having to be talking to support, um, they are very loyal to you. And they be are excellent references because they always kind of keep the big picture in mind. Because they want to continually validate for themselves 
hey, I made the right decision going with you. So they're really good for the idea of references, reference calls, and for doing any sort of uh, content related to, hey, this is how we did things. These are the places where we stumbled, but this is the area that we finally settled on a solution, and this is how the company helped us get there. Amy, you touched upon status seekers a little bit where, you know, they enjoy the limelight. Uh, they enjoy that recognition. Uh, I imagine, you know, they they have a good social media presence. Um, but what are they, what kind of value are they deriving from the specific types of content that they are creating and participating in? Status seekers like the big stage. And I mean that literally an actual stage or figuratively like having a lot of followers and I'll also say, Shri, that status seekers not only enjoy the limelight, but they really deserve it. They do have interesting, compelling stuff to say. They have sort of earned their title that we're giving them. They might shine uh, on stage at an event or in a webinar, but that doesn't mean that they fail in a, a one-to-one setting. What it does mean is that what's important to them is to be able to sort of demonstrate that they are, they're chosen, they're special, they're a little, you know, above and beyond. I'll give you an example. Salesforce, in their online community, literally calls their highlighted advocates trailblazers. Now, if that is not status, trailblazer, I don't know what is, but that's a great example of appealing to that need or appealing to that kind of motivation. I think you also see status seeking in online communities. And in fact, a lot of communities are designed for that. So you might see a badge or a designation that says certified, power user, top 10 question answerer. A badge is status, it's credentials. This personality also responds to leaderboards and just other places where their efforts are highlighted. Last but certainly not least collaborators. What do they tend to be best suited for? So as I mentioned earlier, collaborators tend to be the least frequent Mm. because these are really like the folks that want to do, for lack of a better term, a joint venture with you. They're really willing to put a lot more into the relationship because they believe in the relationship and they get a lot out of it. A specific example for, you know, that I like to share is that, you know, Iron Mountain did a series of reports about, you know, best practices in managing physical and and digital documents, content. And they did it on different industries and they used their customers from different industries as co-authors. So the, these collaborators really did collaborate and they put it right there at the front of the document. We want to thank so-and-so from this company in financial land or, or, or healthcare land um, and, and say, you know, these were the folks who gave us the ideas behind this particular report. Laura makes a, a really good point there about ideas. Collaborators also will show up in exercises like product ideation or an idea exchange. I would imagine that project managers love collaborators because these are the customers who really are going to share and brainstorm and have, as Laura said, sort of a partnership in developing something, improving something, enhancing something. That is, may not be something that they are publicly talking about. They may or may not mention it in their social media, 
but they are doing it with the product management team, with whomever else might be involved. Incredibly valuable and very motivating to see an idea that you suggest go through a process, be prioritized, and one day is part of a new feature. If that's not validating, I don't know what is. So sort of that group of co-creators, right? You're going to tap co-creators. Yeah, tap them. And I think there's a difference between validators and collaborators too, where validators may do some of the things that Amy was just talking about, but the collaborators are the one who's willing to like introduce you to other folks, put more skin in the game, bring some of their staff or their co-workers into the process where validators are more kind of focused on me, collaborators have a bigger picture. So when you look across all of these styles, do you see that there's a a pattern or a a group of folks, like different levels um, applied across the styles, meaning like you'll see more executives in one group versus, you know, director level and below in other groups, or is that not a consideration here? You will see everything everywhere, I mean, just to be honest, but there are some tendencies. Uh, For example, the educators are folks who are practitioners, typically, as can be validators. It's at the collaborator and status seeker level that you start to see more of the, you know, executive leaders participate more because their motivations are less about themselves and and joining in with what's going on and more about sort of setting trends and 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 establishing directions. And Laura, I might even add that at at that level they've already sought their status. So that's a little bit less of a motivator um, than the other things that you mentioned, those opportunities to connect, have access, whatever that might look like. And as Laura noted, this this is about patterns and trends, not pigeonholing. So at any moment, or as she said, everything is everywhere. I would not type personalities so tightly to title or role that you begin to sort of bucket people in places that are feel limiting to them. But it also does help as you're organizing your thoughts as marketers to know or be able to see kind of trending on these roles tend to gravitate to. That just helps you be Uh, more thoughtful about what you're doing, what you're asking advocates to do, and just more programmatic and organized as you go forward. So definitely not mutually exclusive, um, you know, way to think about it. I want to go back to something where, where we started this conversation about the bar is really high for customer advocacy programs. How should B2B leaders, um, you know, who are starting off early in their journey of customer advocacy, setting up an actual program, how should they think about these personality types with kind of just getting started? Like what, what advice would you give them? So the, here's the advocacy uh, timeline that is so consistent, I feel comfortable announcing it on this podcast. First, the organization begins with what I, Laura and I are calling random acts. Case study here, media opportunity here. Customers are responsive. Uh, the People are enjoying this. It seems to make sense. Then we move up or the organization moves up to maybe a larger group, cultivating a larger group of advocates. This is all on a post-it or spreadsheet where people do the best they can to kind of manage it, understand who the advocates are, maybe understand what they 
do and do not like to do, what they feel responsive to, and also attempt to protect the advocates from overload, overuse. Uh, no advocate wants a side hustle of being your advocate. Again, we go back to has to feel valuable to them as well. And then mat what maturity looks like is all of those things advanced. Uh, enabling technology that allows for that advocate management, that advocate, the understanding of who your advocates are, how they would like to engage, how can you make this a more interesting experience for them at scale, if that's something that you want to do, uh, different tiers perhaps of advocacy, and that might play into personalities. You may have a group of sort of advocate super users who you also tap for things like testing. You may also have a group of advocates who are more C-level and you're looking to them more as collaborators, as Laura said. So you can begin to advance your segmentation, advance your opportunities, and really, really important, have a better understanding of what your advocates are responding to and how this program, because we're ready to call it a program now, how this program is impacting your business. We, we're not going to skip that. So really being able to see our advocates are having an impact on our reputation in some way. They are having an impact on demand or having an impact on sales opportunities. We do absolutely want to get to a place where you're able to see, like any program, how your program is impacting the business. That's maturity. I wanted to add one thing onto what Amy was saying. She does a great job of, of describing that that from beginner to, to maturity. Where we want to push programs further is to really think about how does the program deliver something that the customers value first before we start asking them to do things for us. Because when you create that surplus of goodwill, then some magic happens. And you're not finding that you're having to like scramble around and ask. You just make the ask known and they come to you saying, putting their hands up saying, I want to be part of this. Yeah, I want to do that. Uh, and, and that was the biggest thing that we saw in doing the research to come up with the personalities is that when people focus on delivering that value up front, the reciprocity just takes off and you get a lot of volunteering and a lot of people wanting to be a part of whatever's going on. What Laura's describing there is that litmus test. When you move from reactive, always asking, to a program that feels always on, feels less like a, I'm going out and soliciting and, and more like there is an opportunity and advocates are interested, that's the real maturity turning point and absolutely the, the, the goal of a mature program. Always on, not piecemeal random, the other words that we've used to describe that. And at that point, the return on investment becomes very noticeable as well, because what you're having happening is that that advocacy program becomes part of your customer experience and becomes a differentiator for how you deliver your offerings to the market, right? So it's not just that the functionality works and I get a good price. So the economic part of the value equation is met. This is where the experiential and even the symbolic elements of value get fulfilled is through the advocacy program, the advocacy and community programs. 
It's a great point. I think the the moment you as a marketer hear an advocate bragging about being part of your champions program, your stars program, it is a moment to remember because that's when it's become a valuable experiential symbolic experience for them. Mm-hmm. And of course, the biggest one is when they advance their career, they leave a company, they go to another and they hire you there. They buy you there. I love that. I was just going to ask, like, what is the future state of customer advocacy? But I feel like you just described it so well, right? Like that is where we're going. Is there anything above and beyond what you just stated as like, hey, in a couple years, this is what it needs to be like? So what Laura and I just stated is where we believe the future of advocacy (laughs) should go and want it to go. Now, as is often the case with both Laura and me, the reality might zig and zag. And what we do see, so customers are always going to share their experiences. That is as old as the day that someone had lunch with someone and said, who do you use for, that's always going to happen with or without the company. The need and impact of advocacy aren't going anywhere. What's changing is a a few things, and I'll say what's maturing is a few things. Uh, Organizations' ability to create these more strategic programs that we're talking about that's technology-enabled. It is very hard to do this at scale on a spreadsheet. I'm telling you that from personal experience. (laughs) It's, It's difficult. It gets out of hand, and you're not able to create the kind of valuable experience you want. The technology really helps there. The other thing that we do see and needs to continue is advocate teams, customer marketing teams' ability to connect their advocacy program to the impact that matters to their organization, demonstrably, credibly connect it. That is not always easy uh, and can be a, a stumbling point. So being able to demonstrate whether that's reputation, whether that is references impacting the velocity of opportunities, whether that is a advocate story being the linchpin of a demand program, we could go on and on. But the ability to connect advocacy to impact for the business is just a critical step in solidifying the, the credibility of this discipline. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining us today. It was great to be here. Thank you for having me. I have really enjoyed this, and I hope our listeners get as much out of it as I did. If you like what you heard today, check out our agenda for Forrester's B2B Summit North America, which includes over 100 analyst-led sessions filled with insights to drive your B2B marketing, sales, and product success. Learn more at for.com slash summit24. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash summit24. Thanks for listening.